Section 1 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 5, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Section 1 catherine parr chapter one part one catherine parr was the first protestant queen of england she was the only one among the consorts of henry the eighth who in the sincerity of an honest heart embraced the doctrine of the reformation and imperilled her crown in life in support of her principles the name of catherine which from its greek derivation catharos signifies pure as a limpid stream seems peculiarly suited to the characteristics of this illustrious lady in whom we behold the protectress of coverdale the friend of anne askew the learned and virtuous matron who directed the studies of lady jane grey edward the sixth and queen elizabeth and who may in truth be called the nursing mother of the reformation catherine parr was not only queen of england but an english queen although of ancient and even royal descent she claimed by birth no other rank than that of a private gentlewoman like anne boleyn and jane seymour catherine parr was only the daughter of a knight but her father sir thomas parr was of a more distinguished ancestry than either sir thomas boleyn or sir john seymour from the marriage of his norman progenitor ivo de talabois with lucy the sister of renowned earls morcar and edwin sir thomas parr inherited the blood of the anglo-saxon kings ivo de talabois was the first baron of kendal and maintained the state of a petty sovereign in the north his male line failing with william de lancaster the seventh in descent the honour and estates of that mighty family passed to his sisters hellwise and alice margaret the elder co-heiress of hellwise by peter le bruce married the younger son of robert lord ruse of hamlake and works by isabel daughter of alexander the second king of scotland their grandson sir thomas de ruse married catherine the daughter of sir thomas strickland of sizer castle westmoreland the fruit of this union was an only daughter elizabeth who brought kendall castle and a rich inheritance into queen catherine's paternal house by her marriage with sir william de parr knight sir william parr the grandson of this pair was made knight of the garter and married elizabeth one of the co-heiresses of the lord fitzhugh by alice daughter of ralph neville earl of westmoreland and joan beaufort daughter of john of gaunt duke of lancaster alice neville was sister to the king's great-grandmother cicely neville duchess of york and through this connection catherine parr was fourth cousin to henry the eighth from the elder co-heiress of fitzhugh the patrimony of the marmions the ancient champions of england was transmitted to sir thomas parr father of queen catherine her mother matilda or as she was commonly called maud green was daughter and co-heiress of sir thomas green of boughton and greens norton in the county of northamptonshire this lady was a descendant of the distinguished families of talbot and throckmorton her sister Anne wedded Sir Thomas Bow, afterwards created Lord Bow of Harrowden, 
and dying childless the whole of the rich inheritance of the greens of boton centred in matilda at the age of thirteen matilda became the wife of sir thomas parr this marriage took place in the year fifteen o eight the date generally assigned for the birth of catherine parr is fifteen ten but the correspondence between her mother and lord dacre in the fifteenth year of henry the eighth in which her age is specified to be under twelve will prove that she could not have been born till fifteen thirteen her father sir thomas parr at that time held high offices at court being master of the wards and comptroller of the household to henry the eighth as a token of royal favor we find that the king presented him with a rich gold chain valued at a hundred and forty pounds a very large sum in those days both sir thomas and his lady were frequent residents in the court but the child who was destined hereafter to share the throne of their royal master first saw the light at kendall castle in westmoreland the time-honored fortress which had been the hereditary seat of her ancestors from the days of its norman founder ivo de talabois a crumbling relic of this stronghold of feudal greatness is still in existence rising like a gray crown over the green hills of kendall it is situated on a lofty eminence which commands a panoramic view of the town and the picturesque and ever verdant vale of the kent that clear and rapid stream which night and day sings an unwearied song as it rushes over its rocky bed at the foot of the castle hill the circular tower of the castle is the most considerable portion of the ruins but there is a large enclosure of ivy-mantled walls remaining with a few broken arches these are now crowned with wild flowers whose peaceful blossoms wave unnoted where the red cross banner of st george once flaunted on tower and parapet of the sternly guarded fortress that for centuries was regarded as the most important defence of the town of kendall and the adjacent country the warlike progenitors of catherine had stern duties to perform at the period when the kings of scotland held cumberland of the english crown and were perpetually harassing the northern counties with predatory expeditions before the auspicious era when the realms of england and scotland were united under one sovereign the lord of kendall castle like his feudal neighbor of sizer was compelled to furnish a numerous quota of men-at-arms for the service of the crown and the protection of the border the contingent consisted of horse and foot and above all of those bowmen so renowned in border history and song the kendall archers they are especially noted by the metrical chronicler of the battle of flodden these are the bows of kentdale bold who fierce will fight and never flee dame maud parr evinced a courageous disposition in venturing to choose kendall castle for the place of her accouchement at a time when the northern counties were menaced with an invasion from the puissant and flower of scotland headed by their king in person sir thomas parr was however compelled to be on duty there with his warlike mane in readiness either to attend the summons of the lord warden of the marches or to hold the fortress for the defence of the town and neighbourhood and his lady instead of remaining in the metropolis or seeking a safer abiding-place at green's norton her own patrimonial domain decided on sharing her husband's perils in the north and there gave birth to catherine they had two other children william their son and heir afterwards created earl of essex and marquis of northampton and anne the wife of william herbert the natural son of the earl of pembroke 
to which dignity he was himself raised by Edward the Sixth. Sir Thomas Parr died in the year 1517, leaving his three infant children to the guardianship of his faithful widow, who is said to have been a lady of great prudence and wisdom, with a discreet care for the main chance. The will of Sir Thomas Parr is dated November 7th, the ninth of Henry the Eighth. He bequeathed his body to be interred at Blackfriars Church, London. All his manners, lands, and tenements he gave to his wife, Dame Maud, during her life. He willed his daughters, Catherine and Anne, to have eight hundred pounds between them as marriage portions, except they proved to be his heirs or his son's heirs, in which case that sum was to be laid out in Cope's investments, and given to the monks of Clairvaux, with a hundred pounds bestowed on the chantry of Kendall. He willed his son William to have his great chain, worth one hundred and forty pounds, which the king's grace gave him. He made Maud, his wife, and Dr. Tunstall, master of the rolls, his executors. Four hundred pounds, Catherine's moiety of the sum provided by her father for the nuptial portions of herself and her sister, would be scarcely equal to two thousand pounds in these days, and seems but an inadequate dowry for the daughters of parents, so richly endowed with the gifts of fortune as Sir Thomas and Lady Parr. It was, however, all that was accorded to her, who was hereafter to contract matrimony with the sovereign of the realm. Sir Thomas Parr died in London on the 11th of November, four days after the date of his will, in the parish of the Blackfriars, and there can be no doubt, but he was interred in that church, according to his own request. Yet, as lately as the year 1628, there is record of a tomb, bearing his effigies, name and arms, in the chapel or family burying place of the Pars, in the south choir of Kendall Church. It has been generally said that Catherine Parr received a learned education from her father, but as she was only in her fifth year when he died, it must have been to the maternal wisdom of Lady Parr that she was indebted, for those mental acquirements which so eminently fitted her, to adorn the exalted station to which she was afterwards raised. Catherine was gifted by nature with fine talents, and these were improved by the advantages of careful cultivation. She both read and wrote Latin with facility, possessed some knowledge of Greek, and was well versed in modern languages. How perfect a mistress she was of her own! The elegance and beauty of her devotional writings are a standing monument. I have met with a passage concerning this queen, says Stripe, in the margin of Bale's centuries, in possession of a late friend of mine, Dr. Sampson, which shows the greatness of her mind and the quickness of her wit, while she was yet a young child. Somebody skilled in prognostication, casting her nativity, said that she was born to sit in the highest seat of imperial majesty, having all the eminent stars and planets in her house. This she heard, and took such notice of, that when her mother used sometimes to call her to work, she would reply, My hands are ordained to touch crowns and scepters, and not spindles and needles. This striking incident affords one among many instances, in which the prediction of a brilliant destiny has ensured its own fulfillment, by its powerful influence on an energetic mind. It is also an exemplification, at how precocious an age, the germ of ambition may take root in the human heart. But however disposed the little Catherine might have been, to dispense with the performance of her tasks, under the idea of queening it hereafter, Lady Parr was too wise a parent, 
to allow vain dreams of royalty to unfit her child for the duties of the station of life in which she was born and notwithstanding catherine's early repugnance to touch a needle her skill and industry in its use became so remarkable that there are specimens of her embroidery at sizer castle which scarcely could have been surpassed by the far-famed stitcheries of the sisters of king athelstan though dame maud parr had scarcely completed her twenty-second year at the time of her husband's death she never entered into a second marriage but devoted herself entirely to the superintendence of her children's education in the year fifteen twenty four she entered into a negotiation with her kinsman lord dacre for a marriage between his grandson the heir of lord scroope and her daughter catherine of which the particulars may be learned from some very curious letters preserved among the scroope manuscripts the first is from dame maud parr to lord dacre and refers to a personal conference she had had with his lordship at greenwich on the subject of this alliance most honourable and my very good lord i heartily commend me to you whereas it pleased you at your last being here to take pains in the matter in consideration of marriage between the lord scroope's son and my daughter catherine for the which i heartily thank you at which time i thought the matter in good furtherance howbeit i perceive that my lord scroope is not agreeable to that consideration the jointure is little for eleven hundred marks which i will not pass and my said lord will not repay after marriage had and two hundred marks must needs be repaid if my daughter catherine dies before the age of sixteen or else i should break master parr's will meaning the will of her husband sir thomas which i should be loath to do and there can be no marriage until my lord's son lord scroope comes to the age of thirteen and my daughter to the age of twelve before which time if the marriage should take none effect or be dissolved either by death wardship disagreement or otherwise which may be before the time notwithstanding marriage solemnized repayment must needs be had of the whole or else i might fortune to pay my money for nothing the conversation i had with you at greenwich was that i was to pay at desire eleven hundred marks one hundred on hand and one hundred every year which is as much as i can spare as you know and for that my daughter catherine is to have one hundred marks jointure whereof i am to have fifty marks for her finding till they live together then they are to have the whole one hundred marks and repayment to be had if the marriage took no effect my lord it may please you to take so much pain as to help to conclude this matter if it will be and if you see any defect on my part it shall be ordered as ye deem good as knoweth yesu who preserve your good lordship written at the rye the thirteenth of july your cousin maud parr lord scroope of bolton castle did not choose to submit to the refunding part of the clause and was unwilling to allow more than forty marks per annum for the board or finding of the young lady till the heir of scroope came to the age of eighteen lord dacre after some inconsequential letters between him and dame maud proved his sincerity in the promotion of the wedlock by the following pithy arguments contained in an epistle to lord scroope his son-in-law my lord your son and heir is the greatest jewel that ye can have seeing he must represent your own people after your death unto whom i pray god grant many long years and if ye be disposed to marry him i cannot see without you marrying him to an heir of land 
which would be right costly that ye can marry him to so good a stock as my lady parr for divers considerations first in remembering the wisdom of my said lady and the good wise stock of the greens whereof she is coming and also of the wise stock of the pars of kendall for all wise men do look when they do marry their child to the wisdom of the blood they do marry with i speak not of the possibility of lady parr's daughter catherine who has but one child between her and eight hundred marks yearly to inherit thereof my lord the demands you have and my lady's demands are so far asunder that it is impossible ye can ever agree i think it is not convenient nor profitable that so large a sum as one hundred marks should go yearly out of your land to so young a person as my lady's eldest daughter catherine if it fortune as god defend that your said son and mine die also i think it good but i would not have it comprised in the covenant that during the time of three years that he should be with my said lady parr if she keep her widowhood and ye to find him clothing and a servant to wait upon him and she to find him meat and drink for i assure you he might learn with her as well as in any place that i know as well nurture as french and other languages which me seems were a commodious thing for him at morpeth seventeenth day of december fifteen year henry the eighth these letters certify us that catherine parr was under twelve years of age in the year fifteen twenty four she could not therefore have been born before fifteen thirteen we also learn that lord dacre was anxious that his youthful grandson should participate in the advantages of the liberal education lady parr was bestowing on her children and that he placed due importance on the fact that the lady came of a family celebrated for sound sense and good conduct a point little regarded now in the marriages of the heirs of an illustrious line lady parr and all her lineage had a great reputation for wisdom it seems but the wisdom of this world forms so prominent a feature in the matrimonial bargain which the sagacious widow and the worthy lord scroop were attempting to drive in behalf of their children that the affair came to nothing lord dacre tells lady parr that lord scroop must needs have money and he has nothing whereof to make it but the marriage of his said son and dame maud in a letter from the court of greenwich dated the fifteenth of the following march laments to lord dacre that the custom of her country and the advice of her friends will not permit her to submit to lord scroop's way of driving a bargain lord dacre who seems some degrees less acquisitive than his son and lady parr replies madam for my part i am sorry that ye must be converted in this matter seeing the labor i have had in it which was most for the strength of my friendship for my cousin catherine your daughter assuring you that ye shall not marry catherine in any place that be so good and comfortable to my said cousin your daughter and concerning my lord scroop's demands he demanded nothing but that ye were content to give which was eleven hundred marks and concerning his offer which was one hundred marks jointure it is not far from the custom of the country for from the highest to the lowest it is the custom to give for every one hundred marks of dower ten marks jointure but finally madam seeing ye are thus minded whereat i am sorry as nature constraineth me to be as it doth please you in this business so it shall please me and thus heartily fare ye well at morpeth 
25th day of May, 16 Anno. Thus ended the abortive matrimonial treaty for the union of Catherine Parr and the heir of Scroop, who was her kinsman, by the maternal connection of both with the great northern family of Dacre. Catherine must have been still of very tender age, when she was given in marriage to her first husband, Edward, Lord Borough of Gainsborough, a mature widower, with children who had arrived at man's estate. Henry, the second of these sons, after his father's marriage with Catherine Parr, espoused her friend and kinswoman, Catherine Neville, the widow of Sir Walter Strickland of Sizer, and this lady, though only twenty-nine at the time of her union, was fourteen years older than her husband's stepmother. The principal family seat of Catherine's first husband was his manor house of Gainsborough, situated about seventeen miles from Lincoln, and here, no doubt, he resided with his young bride. His father had expended considerable sums in enlarging and improving this mansion, which was sold, a century afterwards, by one of his descendants, to a wealthy London citizen. Lord Borough had a fine mansion at Catterick, in Yorkshire, and probably at Newark, likewise where his arms impaled with those of his first wife alice cobham were painted on the window which his father presented to the parish church at gainsborough church on the tomb of the first lord borough father to catherine parr's husband the arms of borough were quartered with talabois marmion and fitzhugh which afforded sufficient proof of the ancestral connection of this nobleman with the parrs he appears to have been related to Catherine somewhere about the fourth degree. He died in 1528 to 29. Catherine, therefore, could not have exceeded her fifteenth year at the period of her first widowhood. She had no children by Lord Burrow. Soon after the death of her husband, Catherine was bereaved of her last surviving parent. From a passage in the will of Lady Parr, it appears as if that lady had sacrificed the interests of her daughter in order to purchase a marriage with a kinswoman of the sovereign for her son sir william parr this strange document which is utterly devoid of perspicuity and common sense commences thus dame maud parr widow late wife of sir thomas parr deceased twentieth of may twenty first of henry the eighth fifteen twenty nine my body to be buried in the church of the Blackfriars, London. Whereas, I have indebted myself for the preferment of my son and heir, William Parr, as well as to the king for the marriage of my said son, as to my lord of Essex, for the marriage of my lady Borchier, daughter and heir apparent, to the said earl, and my daughter, Sir William Parr Knight, my brother, Catherine Borough, my daughter, thomas pinkering esq my cousin and steward of my house great difficulties were probably encountered by the executors of lady parr's will as it was not proved till december fourteenth fifteen thirty one more than two years after her death like many of the marriages based on parental pride and avarice the union of catherine's brother with the heiress of the royally descended and wealthy house of borchiere proved a source of guilt and misery to both parties the young lady parr was the sole descendant of isabel plantagenet sister of the king's great-grandfather richard duke of york this alliance increased the previous family connection of the parrs with the sovereign lineage on the female side some degree of friendly intercourse appears to have been kept up between the king and his cousin and the young lady parr 
and we observe that in the year fifteen thirty she sent him a present of a coat of kendal cloth both the brother and the uncle of catherine were now attached to the royal household but many reasons lead us to suppose that catherine became an inmate of sizer castle about this period she was a lively noble and wealthy widow in her sixteenth year when deprived of the protection of her last surviving parent her only near female relations were an unmarried sister younger than herself and her aunt lady throckmorton who resided in a distant county as heiress presumptive to her brother william it was desirable to remain in the vicinity of kendall castle and the family estates in that neighbourhood therefore the most prudent and natural thing she could do was to take up her abode with her kinswoman and friend lady strickland that lady though she had by her marriage with catherine's stepson henry burrow become her daughter-in-law was quite old enough to afford matronly countenance to the youthful widow of lord burrow whom according to the quaint custom of the time she called her good mother catherine parr and lady strickland were alike descended from the nevilles of raby and sir walter strickland the deceased husband of the latter was also a relative of the parrs and as lady strickland held of the crown the wardship of her son young walter strickland's person and estates she remained mistress of sizer castle even after her marriage with henry burrow at no other period of her life than the interval between her mother's death and her own marriage with neville lord latimer could catherine parr have found leisure to embroider the magnificent counterpane and toilet cover which are proudly exhibited at sizer castle as trophies of her industry having been worked by her own hands during a visit to her kinsfolk there as the ornamental labours of the needle have become once more a source of domestic enjoyment to the ladies of england and even the lords of the creation appear to derive some pleasure as lookers-on in tracing the progress of their fair friends at the embroidering frame a brief description of these beautiful and well-preserved specimens of catherine parr's proficiency in that accomplishment may not be displeasing the material on which both counterpane and toilet cover are worked is the richest white satin of a fabric with which the production of no modern loom can vie the centre of the pattern is a medallion surrounded with a wreath of natural flowers wrought in twisted silks and bullion a spread eagle in bold relief gorged with the imperial crown forms the middle at each corner is a lively heraldic monster of the dragon class glowing with purple crimson and gold the field is gaily beset with large flowers in gorgeous colours highly embossed and enriched with threads of gold the toilet is en suite but of a smaller pattern the lapse of three centuries has scarcely diminished the brilliancy of the colours or tarnished the bullion nor is the purity of the satin sullied though both these queenly relics have been used on state occasions by the family in whose possession they have remained as precious heirlooms and memorials of their ancestral connection with queen catherine parr the apartment which catherine occupied in sizer castle is still called the queen's room it is a fine state chamber in that ancient portion of the castle in danecourt tower it opens through the drawing-room and is panelled with richly carved black oak which is covered with tapestry of great beauty the designs represent hunting in all its gradations from a fox chase up to a lion hunt varied with delineations of trees and flowers 
and surrounded with a very unique border in which young tigers are fighting and brandishing their claws at each other in the manner of enraged kittens the most splendid patterns for modern needlework might be taken from these spirited devices over the lofty carved chimney-piece are the arms of england and france supported between the lion and the tudor dragon with the motto vivat regina the date fifteen sixty nine proves they were put up some years after the death of catherine parr though doubtless intended to commemorate the fact that this apartment was once honoured by her use the bed with its hangings of costly crimson damask is shown as the veritable one in which she reposed but the fashion of the bedstead is too modern to favour the tradition which we think more probably belongs to one of the elaborately carved and canopied oaken bedsteads coval with the days of the plantagenets which are to be seen in other chambers of this venerable mansion how long catherine continued the widow of lord borough is uncertain but she was probably under twenty years of age when she became for the second time the wife of a mature widower and again undertook the office of a stepmother it is not unlikely that her residence at sizer castle might lead to her marriage with john neville lord latimer as lady strickland was a neville of thornton briggs and would naturally afford her kinsman every facility for his courtship of their fair cousin lord latimer was related to catherine in about the same degree as her first husband lord borough the date of her marriage with this nobleman is not known he had been previously married twice first to elizabeth daughter of sir richard musgrave who died without issue secondly to dorothy daughter of sir george de vere and sister and co-heiress to john de vere fourteenth earl of oxford by whom he had two children john and margaret the second lady latimer died in fifteen twenty six to twenty seven after catherine became the wife of lord latimer she chiefly resided with him and his family at his stately mansion of snape hill in yorkshire which is thus described by leland snape a goodly castle in a valley belonging to lord latimer with two or three good parks well wooded about it it is his chief house and standeth about two miles from great tanfield the manors of cumberton wadborough and several other estates in worcestershire which he inherited from elizabeth beauchamp were settled on catherine parr at her marriage with this wealthy noble the ancestors of catherine parr the marmions had formerly held sway at tanfield and through the marriage of her grandfather sir william parr with elizabeth fitzhugh the granddaughter of the heiress of sir robert marmion the castle and manor of tanfield descended to the father of catherine and was now the property of her brother young william parr he was at that time childless and as catherine was his heiress presumptive there was a contingency by no means remote of this demesnay which was so desirably contiguous to her husband's estates falling to her it would be too much to say that lord latimer had an eye to this contingency when he sought the hand of catherine parr for she was young lovely accomplished learned and virtuous and to a man who had enjoyed the opportunity of becoming acquainted with the perfections of a mind like hers the worldly advantages that might accrue from a matrimonial alliance with her must have been considerations of a very secondary nature fortunate indeed must lord latimer have felt himself in being able to obtain so charming a companion for his latter days and at the same time 
one so well qualified to direct the studies and form the minds of his children the amiable temper and sound sense of catherine taught her to perform the difficult duties that devolved upon her in the character of a stepmother with such conscientious and endearing gentleness that she ensured the love and esteem of all the families with whom she was connected in that capacity during the first years of her marriage with lord latimer she pursued the noiseless tenor of her way in the peaceful routine and privacy of domestic life to which those talents and acquirements which afterwards rendered her the admiration of the most learned men in europe and the intellectual model of the ladies of england was calculated to lend a charm End of section 1